Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me listening to the Learner's Corner podcast. And today, do I have a great episode for you. Today, I am talking with Dr. Tim Muehlhoff and Dr. Richard Langer as well. And they've recently released a brand new book called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And so I'm super excited to bring this conversation to you. Uh, But before that, I do want to give a couple of quick shout outs. First to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast, and to Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast as well. And I'm really excited to bring uh, this conversation to you because I feel like this conversation and this this book that they've off that uh, that Tim and Rick have authored is really it really captures the heartbeat that is behind the learner's corner. And it's the idea that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and that we can, as they say, we can disagree without being divided, that we can have differing opinions and still be unified. And I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you. I do want to tell you a little bit about uh, Tim and Rick before that, though. Tim is the professor of communication at Biola University in La Merced, California, and a speaker and research consultant for the Center for Marriage and Relationships. His books include I Beg to Differ, Authentic Communication, The God Conversation, and Defending Your Marriage. And Rick is a professor of biblical and theological studies at Talbert School of Theology and the director of the Office for Integration of Faith and Learning at Biola University. Together, They authored a book which came out a few years ago called Winsome Persuasion, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book Award in Apologetics and Evangelism. In addition to teaching and writing, they are the co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project, which seeks to introduce civility and compassion into our discussion of differences. And also, they, uh, they, or I think Tim mentions this as well, but they have an event coming up, which I want to let you know about, uh, which I'll be tuning in for. Um, there's just really so much, so much gold in this conversation. And if you want to continue to learn from them, you can go to the online civility, <laughs> and man, let me say that right, online c- civility conference with Biola's Department of Communication Studies, which is on Wednesday, March 10th. And then also the Winston Conversations with Non-Christians and InterVarsity Conference for Faculty and Staff, which will be on uh, that will be on Friday, March 12th, uh, and on Saturday, March 13th. All the links for that will be in the show notes as well. So feel free to tune in to any of those things. But without any further wait, here is my conversation with Tim and Rick. Well, Tim and Rick, I'm so excited to have you both on the podcast to talk about your brand new book, which has come out called Winsome Conviction. And just as we get started, anytime that I'm I'm talking with someone who has put out a book or put out, you know, a piece of art or a movie or anything like that, I love hearing kind of the story that led this person, or in in this case, the both of you going like, hey, this is something that we need to talk about. And this is like something that we need to create a resource for. And so I would just love to hear your guys' story of what made you want to put this out. Yeah. So I tell you, we, so Tim and I wrote an earlier book called Winsome Persuasion. And it was really, it was focused towards the church, but talking about how we communicate with the outside world, the non-Christian mm-hmm. world and things like that. And some of our problems, we, we felt we had problems with kind of always speaking in a prophetic voice but not necessarily doing good persuasion. (laughs) You know, simply declaring the truth doesn't make a person believe it. So we talked and thought a lot about that. And then, uh, you know, when the book came out, we talked to people like, you know, podcasts or conferences, retreats. And one in particular that I remember, I was at a men's retreat talking to a batch of men, wonderful church. They have this beautiful mix of 
of men from age 20 to age 90 at this retreat. It was just really cool. But I was talking to one of the guys who's probably about 70 years old, and we were talking about some issues about uh, the gay lesbian community and how we communicate and fail to communicate there and all of this. And so we're having a discussion about all this. And I, I made some comment about the importance of how we communicate to the non-Christian world, our own convictions that we, you know, do more explaining or something. And he just shook his head and says, you know, Rick, this isn't a thing about us in the non-Christian world. This is happening between the different people sitting right here in this retreat, the differences and the disagreements. And that got me to thinking, I, I knew that would be true about many issues. We have a huge divide within the church about that perspective. But boy, he really drilled it home. And that got Tim and I talking about some of this and said, you know, one of the things that is perhaps even more difficult than communicating Christian convictions to the non-Christian world is dealing with conflicts between Christian convictions within the church. You feel betrayed. You feel like there's a wolf in sheep's clothing sitting right there in your small group. So those were some things that hit us. And that's why we decided, hey, let's let's write this book. Mm-hmm. I would just add to that, Caleb, though Rick has been a pastor for 20 years, uh, I dipped my big toe into the waters. I've served as the teaching interim pastor in two different churches and just got a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of disagreements, passionate disagreements that Christians have with each other over issues that both feel like they have biblical support to argue their issue. And that that's the, I teach communication. I'm a communication professor mm-hmm. at Biola University. <clears throat> and that's the weird thing about Christian disagreement is when we say, thus saith the Lord, and you've got two groups saying it, then you're like, okay, now where do we go from here? Because we both have biblical warrant to kind of believe what we believe. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that I was really intrigued by just as preparing for our conversation is this, the statement that both of you have talked about. And, and Rick, I think you said it, uh, you know, kind of verbatim is the, hey, this is a problem in the church and not necessarily what the church and secular culture or the outside right. culture. And I would just love to hear any of any other thoughts of what makes what makes that so and what makes it more difficult that it's within the church. You know, Tim, you had said some of it, but I would just love any other thoughts on that. Yeah, so that was one of the things that hit me as I began to think about it, is we actually have a reason why this is particularly difficult within the church. And let me just start with one of the things that I think is obvious to us, but we don't think about the implications of it. And that is when a non-Christian person develops a conviction about some moral issue, how should we do immigration, or how should we treat gay and lesbian people, or how should mm-hmm. we deal with uh, you know international threats and violence? They will read different sources. They'll think about things, but basically decide what do I feel or what do I believe about this? And they'll form a conviction about that. You know, no crime. That's fine. That's what people do. But for Christians, I don't wake up in the morning and ask, what do I think about this issue? I go, what does Jesus think about this issue? Mm-hmm. And I might have a conviction about something that I really wouldn't care to have, but because Jesus says it, I, what can I say? Hell being an example, if, you know, free Tuesday morning, not knowing what, hey, let me think up a new doctrine. How about hell? I, you know, I wouldn't go there naturally. And I'm not saying that's like wrong. (laughs) I'm simply saying this is the deal. How I form a Christian conviction is by saying, look, this is what I believe would please Jesus. Well, here's the rub on that. If I think this particular course of action would please Jesus and Tim disagrees with that, He's basically telling me not that I have a bad conviction, but I have Jesus wrong. Mm. Oh, well, now that feels a little different here. And you can imagine the same thing happening when the authority we appeal to is the Bible. And so we both go to the Bible and we find two different directions that our conviction goes. And suddenly it's like, wait a minute, you're not telling me I have a bad conviction. You're telling me I'm a false prophet. I am saying, thus saith the Lord and the Lord didn't say it. Well, that will amp it up. And then for the final kicker, um, it's a little bit like you're sitting there in your small group and you're lamenting what just happened in an election or some course of action in our country or what's happening with riots in the streets. And the person sitting beside you to discover has the opposite view. 
And I said in, in the inter introduction to the book, I made the comment, it's just like in a war, you have the people on the other side of the lines and they have the blue outfits and you have the green outfits. Um, and if you find one of the blue soldiers behind your lines, you capture him and you put him in prison. He becomes a prisoner of war. And then when the war is over, he goes back to the other side and all of that. But if that soldier is dressed up in your uniform, you don't put him in prison. You shoot him at dawn. Uh, mm -hmm. He is a spy. He is not subject to the Geneva Convention rules. And that's what we feel like when we get one of them in our small group Bible study. And the worst part is we, if you think about this just in broad pictures for our country, where basically 70 to 80% of evangelical Christians would vote Republican. Mm -hmm. What that really means is if you have a small group with 10 to 15 people, you have a small group of 15 people. I just want to ask, so who are the three or four Democrats in your group? Because statistics would say, that in an evangelical small group, you're bound to have a mix and probably a meaningful number, two to four people in this 10 to 12, 14 person group who might vote Democratic. We are oblivious to those facts. So that's the, those are all the things that make this so intense and so difficult for Christians. And Caleb, let me give you a quick illustration of that. And so I have a dear, I have a friend of mine, deeply respect him, absolutely committed believer. There's no question. Uh, um, and so when it came to the election, obviously all of us were pulled in different directions and that's fine. I mean, if you wanna have your personal uh, political convictions, you're good, I'm good. We don't have to agree on each other. Until you start to say um, and use your platform to say, it's a sin not to vote for my candidate. And I'm like, okay, wait, what? You, okay, now you can't say that, right? That's say. Um, and now, now we've got a problem. You can't say that because people are coming up to me and saying, well, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, obviously I don't agree with that because I'm not voting for his candidate. So now you've got tension within the body and you've got two you know, public people that just flat out disagree with each other. And now you've got tension within the body and now we're going to have to come together. That's what the book's about. Mm -hmm. when you can live and let live live and let live but a lot of times we can't live and let live because i think what you're doing is wrong and it might even be sinful yeah i was i think another thing that really stood out to me is uh you know you have this statement which is which is just a it's a great statement because it draws you in so much is you say the greatest threat to the church is quarreling in it yeah which I think if you would poll people and say, hey, tell me what the greatest threat to the church is. I mean, you even do this in the book. That would be far down the list. Mm -hmm. I would love to just uh, just pick your brains on why is that so and maybe start with you, Tim, and then on to Rick. Well, because I teach communication, um, communication climates can bring you together or they can absolutely divide you. And one of the reasons we wrote the book is because we feel like our communication climate has really suffered when it comes to really big issues like um, immigration, uh, who we should vote for in the election, the mask wearing issue has become Black Lives Matter, a critical race theory. I mean, these have pulled us apart. And so we really do believe in the first book, Winston Persuasion. We believe we're ambassadors for Jesus. We believe in the Great Commission. Um, but we're not rowing in the same direction anymore because we are having massive disagreements and not just on the intellectual level. I mean, we've seen, Rick and I have seen churches that have almost split because I can't even be in the same worship sanctuary anymore with you because of how angry I am with you. I, I was at this one meeting one time um, and uh, as a person was speaking, there was a group behind me and every time the person would say something, a person behind me would go, liar. And you're just, I just wanted to turn around and go, oh my gosh, right? So if that's the kind of attitude you have, you're not coming together to do evangelism or fulfill the Great Commission. And, and I wrote a book on spiritual battle and marriage specifically called Defending Your Marriage. You better believe in the backdrop Satan is using all of this to keep us away from evangelism, proclamation, and he's fueling that fire. And we got to be aware of that, of course. But yeah, that's what I would say is communication-wise, when the climate is negative, other things aren't getting done. Mm 
And that's where we've got to come together. And we give, we give things in the book of how to do that. The, the second part of the book really is some practical ways of addressing this. Uh, but we really feel like um, these disagreements can stop us dead in our tracks. And, and I think one of the challenges, if you to, to kind of run a bit with Tim's comment about spiritual warfare, if you were to think about this, you know, it was Satan trying to impede the advance of the kingdom of God, so to speak. It's hard if he wanted to, you know, rake havoc somewhere. It's hard for a person like myself. I've been a believer for 45 years. I don't know how long. It's been a long time. I quit counting, you know? <laughs> and for me to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to deny the resurrection of Christ. I've thought this whole thing through, that whole Apostle Creed thing can't be right. Yeah, it's an almost insurmountable conceptual, social, at every level challenge for me. So if you want to immobilize me or those around me to say, hey, we're going to go to work on the resurrection, I don't care how important the resurrection is. I'm just saying that one's pretty going to be pretty well defended. But boy, if you can say, you know, it doesn't matter what they believe as long as I can make them fight each other. I don't have to actually oppose these super important transcendent beliefs. And I think that is exactly why quarreling is so destructive. And as I pointed out in the in the book, so commonly referred to in the New Testament, basically every New Testament epistle talks about issues related to quarreling, even in good churches. Yeah. And Caleb, let me give you another illustration. So we do a podcast called the Winsome Conviction Podcast. And you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you find podcasts. So after people listen to yours, they can listen to ours. <laughs> yeah. so. Yep. Um, so, so what a great idea. Until you have some committed believers say, but when you have that person on your show who denies the faith or, or even believes what we would say maybe is a borderline heretical belief, you are condoning that by giving that person the microphone. And Rick and I are like, no, absolutely not. That is just not the case. But think about it if you see the world through the eyes of that person. That person believes you are giving a microphone to a person who can do great damage to your listeners. And then you're like, okay, but we, I mean, it's like, it's like a Grand Canyon of a difference of opinion because Rick and I just don't believe that acknowledgement is condonement. If you acknowledge a person's beliefs, that's not condoning it. We're engaging it. But there are people who look at our podcast and say, you guys are doing harm. No, I'm with you because that that idea that you're talking about is literally what led to this podcast being formed with it. <laughs> and is the whole idea behind it. I, I love what you were saying. That acknowledgement doesn't mean condone it. It's just, it's just taking the posture of, you know, I, I would say uh, of a learner or even of love. In the that case, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. I think I think that's actually the exact right thing to say. It's really an issue of love. Am I willing to give meaningful acknowledgement, pay attention, attend to, listen to this person? And that is just classic sort of an act of love or refusal to love if you refuse to do it. Yeah, I I would love your thoughts on. It. I mean, we talked a little bit uh, about it with the spiritual warfare piece, but what do you think has led us to this moment of? quarreling being such a big thing and maybe maybe i'm overreacting to it but it just seems like right now with there's just so it just feels like there's so many opportunities for us to get involved in quarreling uh any any thoughts on like what what has led us to where we are right now to where quarreling seems to be maybe more pervasive boy Uh, you know there so i'll let him think a little bit about this too but there's two things that come to my mind uh, immediately on this and one of them is indeed the way that uh the internet has changed our news delivery systems so i grew up when if you wanted to watch the news you had a choice between huntley brinkley walter Cronkite, cronkite and uh, whoever was doing abc at the time it was before peter jennings but anyhow you know somebody like that And all of those people were intentionally trying to speak the news to America as a whole. They wanted to be America's news source. And likewise, New York Times and and Chicago Tribune and LA Times and papers like that were trying to be similar. Um, That was their intentional target. 
And they, of course they had their biases and their leaning and all of that, but they were constantly thinking, this is my, my pool and what message do I want to send them? I think with the internet, we've realized that, oh, we can target very narrowly, number one, more invisibly what happened was the, uh, <laughs> the newspapers, all the written traditional newspapers and their traditional even TV media sources suddenly had the advertising dollars and things like that sucked out of them because there were other ways to reach your, your customers and those are super targeted. I'm trying to sell belts uh, with polka dots to young 14-year-old girls. I don't need the national world. I want somebody targeting that. And so all of the media advertising, all of the money that funds it became super targeted. And what became incentivized was a click. So anything I can do to get a click is rewarded in our current media structure. Now, I'm not blaming anybody for that. That's not, you know, Fox News's fault or MSNBC's fault. That's just the way it has developed. But the side effect is the echo chamber and all that you can have a you could be on a 24 seven news cycle doing nothing with your life listening to news, listen to multiple stations and never hear anyone who isn't part of your echo chamber. Um, and it would be reinforced by way you get a face. So that's one huge current. The other thing is to blame our universities a bit for things like this. Um, the last 20 to 30 years to me, we have moved from a place where outrage is viewed as a bit of a vice, a person is like losing control or things like that, to being viewed as a virtue. And so we've become kind of an outrage culture. Um, I think Slate Magazine back in 2014 or something like that had an uh, uh, entire issue devoted to the year of outrage. Mm. And we will teach students in our humanities classes, things like that, to be more outraged. You're insufficiently outraged at the injustice that's going on. And the irony for Tim and I is that this is exactly what we were talking about with Christians who it's not like Christians would never do this. I'm saying, no, no, I think evangelicals were really good at doing this and it drove me nuts. And we were talking about this and we talked about this in our other book. And it's like outrage doesn't really win. It's just like the American tourist who's in France trying to figure out where the bathroom is. And the guy says, I don't speak English. And so he shouts it louder in English, where's the bathroom? And I'm like, there's no amount of volume that will change the fact that you're not speaking the right language. And I think that's yeah. what people, evangelicals were doing for years. I think that's now very characteristic of what's happened a lot with a more left-leaning political orientation is we are, things haven't changed. Things are evil. They haven't changed. And the thing we should do is get more and more outraged. And I'm like, I don't think the outcome of that will be what you want, but I think that has led to the, you know, quarreling division. Mm -hmm. And Caleb, we got to figure this social media thing out. We, we can't ignore it. Secretary Clinton once said that the uh, internet is the new public square. And I, I think she's absolutely right on that. So March 10th, Winsome Conviction Project is hosting with Biola's communication department and PR department a conference on civility and online communication. So you can check our website, winsomeconviction.com, and uh, we're gonna do a conference on this, trying to pull together strategies of how we can be more civil uh, when it comes to our online expression and disagreements and stuff like that. So there's a lot of work that has to be done. Um, one, one of our speakers is gonna do a talk on the Sabbath, that you need to store up spiritual grace when you enter into these <laughs> internet conversations because it gets depleted like right away. Um, so check, check on our website, uh, winsomeconviction.com and we're gonna be doing a conference in March 10th on, uh, it'll be open to everybody, it'll be live and also recorded. That's awesome. Uh, one, one of the thing or another, I mean, there's literally so many helpful things in the book. I mean, another another thing that you talk about in the book is distinguishing between what it what is a conviction, what's more absolute, and then what is what's a matter of taste, as well mm. too. And I would just love um, your guys' thoughts on how do we distinguish between those things? Because like depending on, I mean, depending on so many factors, it could be very easy to get uh, our our view of Jesus and who Jesus actually is very twisted into each other. And so what are some things that, that myself, that other people can use to help us distinguish, Hey, are, are we making God in our own image or is this actually God? Is this actually Jesus? 
Yeah. So one of the things in, in the book, we, you know, you, as you mentioned, there's kind of matters of absolute conviction. There's mere matters of taste. One of the most important theses of the book is that, and there's a third category of what you might call personal convictions. Mm-hmm. So they're personal in sense we won't all agree with them, but they're conviction sense of this isn't a matter of, of mere taste. This is an important moral issue, but there's different ways to see it or address it or work with it. And the trick there then is in effect, what you're doing is helping people realize, oh, I'm going to have a belief that I draw from some absolute Christian conviction, perhaps a conviction about the image of God, that all human beings are created in the image of God. It's like, okay, great. So how do you implement that? How do you operationalize that in life? Well, by golly, I think we should be opposed to abortion. Okay, fair enough. Another person looks at that and says, well, you know what? I think that one of the worst things we do for violating the image of God is is racism and things like that, that act as if one person um, is really in the image of God, the other isn't. And it's like you'd need a, a different savior for every race. What sort of theology is that? This is denying that Jesus was incarnate for all people. That's a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. The trick is for people to say, and I, I'm happy to actually embrace both of the convictions I just identified. I would yeah. say, yeah, I have two thumbs up, I'm good. But the thing that you want to be really careful of is conflating that, saying your belief about race is actually a belief about the incarnation of the humanity of Christ, whatever you, the fact that you derived it from that is exactly what you need to do. But to equate it with that is where it becomes dangerous because you're in effect saying we should all stand up and recite a creed, a confessional belief that includes your conviction about the black lives matter movement or your conviction about how you vote because we want to get a particular kind of Supreme court justice on the court because of Roe v. Wade or things like that. There's so many links between how you vote for a politician and the deity of Christ or the idea that we're all born in the image of God, made in the image of God, that it's dangerous to say, because I've taken this absolute belief and operationalized it in this particular way, that there's no other way it could be operationalized. And that's the real danger. So tracing the conviction back is a super helpful thing to go, oh, right, this is the absolute part, the deity of Christ or whatever it may be that you're anchoring it in. But we equate whatever absolutely drew it from with our particular operational of it. And that's that's dangerous. And Caleb, nobody's happy with live and let live. <laughs> Nobody is happy with, well, you have your conviction, I have mine, we're good. But they do what we call weaponizing a belief. So I'll give you an illustration real quick. So uh, when it comes to marriage, you have two general camps. You have complementarians and egalitarians, mm-hmm. right? Complementarians believe the husband is the spiritual head of the home, right? And the woman submits, lovingly submits. Egalitarians believe, no, 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 they're both co-equals and they both lovingly submit to each other. There is no spiritual head of the marriage. They're both spiritual heads. It's like, well, fine, tomato, tomato. You go do your marriage your way. I'll go do my marriage my way. Both camps aren't happy with that because I really do believe what Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter five is, let's say, complementarianism. But, but, but it's like live and let live. So here's what we do, weaponizing a belief. I say, hey, is the Trinity a core belief? Is the Trinity, uh, what, what Rick is saying, a confessional belief? Well, absolutely. Both camps say yes. The comp- complementarians say egalitarians are attacking the Trinity. Mm-hmm. They're attacking the divine submission that ultimately happens. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I don't want to make it trite. I know complementarians who really, really believe this is an attack against the Trinity. But do you see what happened? Mm-hmm. Now I put it into a confessional belief. Now you are absolutely wrong biblically when it comes to your egalitarianism. That's what we're trying to get away from. We can't keep weaponizing and trying to get everything to be a confessional belief that we just so happen to believe. And that's an interesting example um, because you can operationalize the Trinity in either of two different ways relative to gender roles. So you can say, well, hey, the father submits to the son, and so that should be the model that we have here. So although all people are fully persons in the Trinity, there's a sense of subordination. Um, and so there it is. Well, on the other hand, you can say, well, one of the core doctrines of the Trinity is the equality of all three persons of the Trinity. So the egalitarian is saying, I drop my egalitarianism in the equality of the three persons of the Trinity. So both people, if they 
want, or maybe indeed they should, attach their beliefs back to the notion of Trinitarian interrelationships. But the weird thing is, you can implement and operationalize that in either of two directions. And so when we weaponize, we suddenly take a conflict over gender roles and turn it into a denial of the Trinity um, in either direction. And this actually happened in 2016 as kind of a famous controversy that spun out about the eternal subordination of the sun. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting. The problem, biggest problem for me is that you're suddenly equating the doctrine of the Trinity with uh, the doctrine of you, your view on, on gender role submission things. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that I wanted to ask about that uh, the both of you made me start thinking about is how do we know whenever it might be appropriate to to engage in um, in the dialogue? I don't I don't even know if I want to use the debate, but or the word debate, but I can't think of another word. Whenever it comes to personal convictions, and then choosing also of like, hey, it's just time to to let something go whenever it comes. To this any thoughts yeah. on that uh yeah so uh, w one thing we talk about in the book is the structure of a church is very important right uh, and we have a whole chapter on power dynamics mm -hmm. we don't want to ignore power dynamics that happens but but you know in the church can you disagree with the senior pastor absolutely you can disagree with the senior pastor and is there a formal mechanism by with you by which you can make your concerns known? Yeah, at our church, Rick and I go to the same church. We have an elder board, and you can approach the elder board, and you can make your comments known, and you can get, give your grievances. And that elder board is powerful. I mean, if the elder board were to vote, uh, they could say to the senior pastor, I think you stepped out of line mm -hmm. here. And the senior pastor has to abide by what the elder board says, at least in the structuring of our church, okay? Yeah. So let's say you do that. I mean, you go and you present your case as passionately as you can, and at the end of the day, the elder board comes back and says, okay, we, we see merit in this, but we're not gonna do overall what you want us to do. Mm -hmm. Now at that point, Rick and I think, you need to make a decision before the Lord. Am I gonna stay, right, even though I lost, yeah, I, I have to stay in a way that I'm not attacking the senior pastor, Yeah, right? This is what Paul says. I want you to put away slander, and I want you to put away clamor. Slander is, so let's say I lose the decision before the elder board. Now, wh whomever I'm talking to, I'm speaking negatively of the pastor and the elder board. You get enough people doing that, that's clamor, okay? Yeah. Well, we just think that can't be the case. So there might be a time, you know, Dwight Pentecost wrote a book, Things That Rightly Divide Us. And there might come a time where you just say, I, I think it's time for me to leave. Or if I'm going to stay, then there's a lot of biblical uh, advice on how you need to act if you're going to stay. Hmm. And another thing that you mentioned there, uh, Caleb, was was the idea of do we, what, in this area of personal convictions, can we talk about it? And I think yeah. this is actually one of the things that Tim and I are hoping to do is to help people talk about Because I think just because you have a personal conviction A and I have one B uh, doesn't mean that now we should just back off. I'm saying, no, no, go ahead and have a conversation, but a respectful one that's partly designed to help each other hold your conviction in a God-pleasing way. Because like in Romans 14, the punchline of that is having a conversation about days and diets and Paul doesn't say, hey, who cares? Those are trivial things because they weren't. Think about the first century. Think about the Gospels. What's more important and more divisive in the Gospels than what you do on a yeah. Sabbath day or who you eat with, right? Yeah. yeah. So these are areas that Paul's saying, no, I want you to be fully convinced. But the point is, the action point in Romans 14 is to respect your brother and sister in Christ. But you mm -hmm. can certainly talk, and Paul mentions there, he says, I actually believe and am fully convinced that these basically that the diet issues and the days issues aren't that big a deal. But he says, I'm not going to lead someone to violate my conscience. I'm not going to kind of flog them into submission on this, but I might just keep talking to them about it, but we'll yeah. do it in a way that gives them room to breathe. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think another thing that really stood out, I think it just continues just kind of the, the flow of everything is how you address whenever there are breaks of unities 
uh, or breaks of unity mm-hmm. in the church too. And you kind of lay out like the the four state, like the four step process or the the cycle of it. Would you just be able to talk more about that? Because I felt like it was just so it just put vocabulary around stuff that happens, but I just hadn't heard of before. Yeah, this comes from a sociologist. Uh, who studied cultures and noticed that there were certain uh, phases that conflict tends to go through. And so for the sake of time, let's talk about the biggest one. That is a breach. Yeah. It's a breach in the system. And, and you recognize it as a breach, right? You're like, okay, this issue has reached the level that now we have to deal with it yeah. because I, I cannot continue if our church heads in this direction or if the senior pastor heads in this direction. So when there's a breach, you suddenly discover what he calls redressive mechanisms, which means, okay, once a breach has happened, it's kind of a good thing because it forces you to realize, hey, what what is the systems that we have in play to deal with this? Yeah. But like John Gottman, one of the top marital researchers in the world, says that conflict early in a marriage is a really good thing because it forces you to step back and say, hey, how are we going to resolve these conflicts? Like we're going to have them in our marriage, but I don't think we have a system by which we can have a really good conversation. So Gottman says it's really good early on to have these conflicts. Same thing for a church, a university, a small group, is when, when a breach happens, you step back and say, I don't think we have any plan of dealing with this conflict. Yeah. I, I really don't. So it's really good for a church, a Christian university like ours. I mean, we, we have HR department. We have a grievance committee that can be formed by a, a professor can ask for a grievance committee. So it's a good thing when a breach happens because then you realize, okay, how do we deal with it? Now, once it's dealt with, the individual has a decision to make, and that is whether I reintegrate or I step away. Yeah. And uh, that, that's going to be a hard decision. We, we don't um, approach that flippantly, but we really do think there comes that, is there going to be a schism or are we going to come back together with each other? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the heart of the book. And it's, can, I disagree, can I disagree with you yet still fellowship with you and do, and do the bigger mission stuff together? Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to say, it's interesting thing of Acts 15 the Jerusalem conference is an example mm-hmm. of this kind of a thing where you have these complaints that are formed, you have a redress of mechanism, you have the final action point, and then they go out and they're proclaiming this. And obviously people are going to have to decide, okay, am I in or out? Um, and of course the goal, the church was wanting everyone to be in. That was the point of it. We've decided this, but of course you discover as you read on through the new Testament, there are certain people that say, eh, not so much. I still want everyone to be circumcised. And yeah. so you have Paul saying some pretty strong things about people on the other side of that because they refuse to embrace that conclusion. But the point is that was the dividing line. You, you decide, here's what we do. And then the people who are on the outside are going to have to sort out, you know, what, what they make of that. Yeah, that's really good. If, if it does end up coming to a, a point to where there is a schism, what how can you end up leaving well and on leaving on good terms whenever it comes to it? Because as, as much as I think the three of us would want to say, Hey, that let's hope that never happens at some point, chances are it might happen. So how, how can you leave well and on good terms without burning any bridges or ruining a relationship? You know, this is the thing I think Paul and Barnabas give us a really good example of where they have kind of a harsh disagreement about things. But the one thing that's really clear as you read through the rest of the New Testament, every time Barnabas is mentioned by Paul, which happens three or four times in his other epistles, he is always mentioned and identified positively. And he is a person who is still advancing the gospel. I think what you have is two guys there. If you go back to that conviction spectrum, they had a guideline for conduct that they decided that they had to depart on. And partly this was a sense of mission direction. Partly it was an issue of you know, how do we make sense of John Mark and what he did when he deserted us, you know? So yeah. they divide on that point, but they both are clear that they are sharing the same confessional beliefs. They are committed to the same core values of advancing the gospel, but they just we have to go in two different directions. And so you make your part, you clarify what the issue is, you make your part. And with clarifying the problem issue, you're also affirming the common ground. 
And that I think is super important. And I think if you can do that, if organizations do that or things like that, such that they can say, hey, I understand this person. We still share a common set of confessional beliefs in the grand scheme of salvation history. They're on my side, not on Satan or on God's side, not on uh, Satan's side. Uh, you know, we, we, we need to celebrate this person, um, even if we have to go different ways. Yeah. Caleb, let me give you a, a, a off-the-cuff illustration that just came to mind as we were talking about this. Okay, so I, I studied Shaolin Kung Fu for seven years. Uh, I have a black belt in Kung Fu, one of the most, the oldest martial art there is. Um, but then I started working at a domestic violence shelter, helping women verbally and physically defend themselves. And I just started to realize Kung Fu wasn't super practical for these women. So I left the school and went to a Krav Maga school, okay? Now, there's two ways I can leave my Kung Fu school. I mean, after seven years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I can say I really appreciate the tradition of Kung Fu. There's a lot of forms. Um, if you're ever attacked and, and you want to use a two-sided sword, Caleb, <laughs> I've got techniques for you. If you happen to have one in your back, in your trunk, I can teach you how to use a spear, a staff and a double-edged sword, okay? But I, I could leave and weaponize it, right? I could leave and say, guys, what, we do, what we're doing isn't good for self-defense. It doesn't work. You're living in a fantasy world. This is a joke. That's leaving badly. I rather said, man, thank you so much for the tradition I learned, the discipline I learned, the community I formed, and some of this stuff has really made me a better self-defense instructor. Uh, and, and by the way, I just had coffee with my uh, Sifu, is, is Chinese for teacher. We just had coffee and, and had a really good natural time, even though I left his school, mm. right? If I weaponize it, I call into question the legitimacy of traditional martial arts like Aikido and uh, Kung Fu. To me, that's weaponizing, and I'm leaving now picking a fight with the group that I just left with. We, we, so to me, we've got to be disciplined. I'm not going to speak ill of you. And, I, and I'm going to celebrate the really good things I learned and the really good things we did, even though I'm moving on in a different direction. And now I'm studying a different um, martial art. We got to be really careful how we lead. Yeah. I was going to say, it, it even just makes me think of, um, it, well, it goes back to the, the matter of personal conviction convictions that we've been talking about and even having the self-awareness that just because it doesn't work for me or just because it isn't for me in matters like this doesn't mean that it's not good as well. Yeah. When I think this is one of the things we, we talk about uh, that the differing convictions in the body of Christ, if you were to think about the body of Christ, like an app for your phone or a computer um, mm -hmm. here's, here's the thing, differing convictions in the body of Christ they aren't a bug in the app. They're actually a design feature. Mm. Jesus, I discovered this being a pastor for 20 years, is that the people who got things done and made great ministries happen in our church were the people who were absolutely passionate about it and thought every human being on planet Earth and perhaps certain other members of the animal kingdom should all be joining in this ministry because it's like the best thing in the world, you know? Well, you know what? If you don't have that kind of passion, you're probably not really going to get a ministry started from ground up as a volunteer in a church, right? The only problem is when the guy next to you leading a different ministry has the same passion and you won't let the other one have his space too, or probably more relevant that you're not willing to just let the pastor or the elder, whoever's in charge say, Hey, here's how we'll negotiate the turf. You guys be as passionate as you want, but someone has to decide how we'll balance out the whole. As long as everybody respects that, differing convictions are fantastic because it allows people to express their commitment. So one person is absolutely convinced that, boy, that we've got to care for the poor and we're going to run a food uh, you know, program. Another person says, look, caring for the poor, what you really want to do is get them a job. So we need to get a job things going. And a third person says, look, this is all great, but what you really want is not individual jobs. We want to run businesses in a healthy business climate so everybody can get a job. All of those things would be probably pretty nice to do. 
You know, if I'm poor today and don't have a meal, I'd love the food shelter. If I don't have a job, I'd like the job thing. But it would be great if we had a whole economy so I didn't have to go to some special place to get a job. There are just jobs available. So all of that needs to be done. And it probably has to be done with a person with a passionate conviction about it. So the goal here is to say, man, there's room for many of these, you know, there's some things that may be off the charts, but vast majority of the things I talk to people in the church about are saying, going, yeah, that's a great thing to do. But Caleb, so I I totally agree with what Rick's saying, but teaching communication, perception is reality. Yeah. So, So let's go back to my martial arts illustration just for a second. So if I leave, Kung Fu thinking I'm just not into the tradition as much as valuable as that is. I'm just not, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. I'm, I'm so grateful what I have, but I need to leave. But what if I take the attitude that what Kung Fu is teaching is actually dangerous for people in self-defense situations. And let's take it one step further. What if I believe it's actually a scam trying to make a buck at the expense of people. And by the way, when I teach self-defense at Biola University, we, we watch videos every week of people that are absolutely trying to make a buck teaching people that will it'll get people hurt mm-hmm. or killed what they're teaching. Now, you see how that just went into a different category? Yeah. So I'm not opposed to that category. Right? I think at times there's going to be a category. But if we start to think not not only are you wrong, but you are going to hurt this church. Not only are you wrong, but you're going to hurt this university. And I'd rather the university close than be influenced by you. That's when we get into some really difficult territory. Um, and, and I'm not saying that that won't ever happen, but let's be really slow getting there and, and believing the worst about people instead of believing the best. But I want to I want to concede that every once in a while, we're going to come across people that are actually harming people. And we need to adopt the prophetic voice. And we need to go in hard, just like Paul does with the Judaizers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's one of that's personally one of my favorite parts of the books is like, wherever you, you talk about the perception is reality, and realizing that your perceptions don't fit every person in that category through everything. I I would love your thoughts on what wh- how do you handle it when uh when you're on the other side and people have perceptions of you with that. Mm. What have what have you two learned about that? So Tim and I probably I mean we have differences in our perspective about things too yeah. and we've written about some of those those differences. But we probably occupy more of the center in the current political spectrum than Mm -hmm. either of the edges. And perhaps I lean a little bit more to the center right and Tim leads a little bit more to the center center. In in terms of the overall political spectrum in America, we occupy a pretty close proximity to each other actually. So you you have those, those sorts of differences. The weird thing for us is when we begin speaking out, people on the far right suddenly deem us to be the far left. People on the far left are like, oh, that's that guy doing that. And I'm like, man, I, you know, who is it who's going to take pot shots? Well, gee, you never, you never know. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is hard to feel like what the misperception of, uh, you know, of you are. And I, because I was a person who had some tensions about Donald Trump, I had a lot of people feel like, oh, you must be, uh, you know, a leftist or or mm-hmm. even just voting Democratic, which I haven't. I didn't. I, but any anything that moves off the narrow track of how I perceive it suddenly becomes the opposite side. And this is this weird process of the needle just swinging and there's just almost no middle ground. But then if we will do these groups with faculty or students, and what you'll find when you actually sit down with a sample of students, you have a huge number of people who actually do occupy the middle, but there's no voices that speak from the middle. So you're immediately identified with whoever person sees on the opposite side that's speaking in extreme. And so that's made it very, very difficult. The, go ahead. Well, Tim. I was just going to say, Rick, how, how we frame something, Caleb, is we got to be very careful how we frame it. John Gottman, remember that marriage researcher, yeah. he says the first two minutes frame the entire conversation. And so I, I 
personally did not vote in this last election for president. I voted for everything else, right? All the props, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. But I couldn't vote for either. So, so I had one person frame it this way. Men and women died for your right to vote. And you just desecrated that right. Was well, like, wow, hello. <laughs> how, how are you doing today? We, we call that, in, in communication, we call that a harsh startup. And so what we're trying to advocate, like the last couple chapters in the book, is let's not have harsh startups. Let's have soft startups where we believe the best about each other. And that, and that is not fueled today nor rewarded by today's argument culture. So we've got to be countercultural. Remember what Peter says? When insulted, I want you to bless that person. And I think we've really gotten away from that. If, if I could kind of give a people a magic pillar or vitamin supplement or something to help engage these conversations better, there's probably two things I'd want to fertilize, so to speak. One is humility, intellectual humility. It just says, you know, I have a firm conviction about this, but on the other hand, I don't know everything. And I bet even if my conviction doesn't change fundamentally, it could be improved. So let me listen. And let me even listen to a person who, who gives a critique. Um, so humility would be the one thing. The other thing would just be curiosity. Mm. When a person's different than me, let me be interested. Let me be intrigued. In the book, I talk about the idea of we, we need to become chimps and not rhinos. So a rhinoceros is famously blind. I mean, they like from 50 feet, they, the claim is that they can't tell the difference between a tree and a human being. And so when a rhino sees something out there, he just like, oh, I don't know what that is. I think I'll ram it. And it's, you know, it's bad for the trees. It's bad for the human beings. It's not even that great for the rhino. Kind of everybody loses. The chimp, on the other hand, when it sees something it doesn't recognize, says, hey, I wonder what happens if I put it on my head, or I wonder if I can bounce it off the wall, or, and, and after a while, the chimp says, yeah, there's not much future in this thing, he just goes off to the next thing and keeps being a chimp. And so the chimp is a model of curiosity, and, and in some sense, playful curiosity, but honest curiosity, and I would love for us more of that sense when we see a different conviction to say, let me be curious, let me probe it, let me ask what led you to think that? Are there people who shaped and made a turning point in your thinking? Tell me the story of your conviction. That's way more likely to help not only have good conversations, but potentially even to move people in new directions because they'll feel understood and valued. And the interesting thing about curiosity is after about 20 or 30 minutes of you asking questions about them, there's like a human mechanism that you suddenly go, I've been talking the whole time. And then they get curious back to you. And so, so how did you get involved? And so you end up creating a context for a conversation that otherwise would have just reduced to, to interpersonal combat. And the reason we wrote Winsome Persuasion, Caleb, is because we reward rhinos. In our culture, yeah. We reward, yeah, in, our, in the Christian culture, well, in culture at large, yeah, right, Rick. But in the Christian culture, we love a good rhino, is we're fighting back. And we are, we're in attack mode. To be playful with, with an unbiblical idea, to be playful with a, a semi-heretical idea, that does not fly with a lot of people, right? Because you're condoning it. We're back to how we started this uh, whole segment. Yeah. Uh, so we, we got to be careful. And again, we are not opposed to rhinos. There are some issues where the prophetic yeah. voice is absolutely appropriate and it would be wrong not to step into racism and sexism and misogyny we need to hit that with a prophetic voice um right but we can't always be a rhino hmm. that's good well hey i know that we're coming to the end of our time and so just as we're concluding i just wanted to ask like what's at stake if we don't do this if we don't take this approach of you know that you write about in winsome conviction oof is that a technical term? <laughs> yeah. So that's an anguished sigh of when we were writing this book, I would have had one feeling of set of comments about this because we finished writing. When was the last draft Tim? maybe? Yeah, I don't know. About a year ago. I think we got the final draft in about the end of January that 2020 
has has made me kind of go, oof, where are we going? And recent events at the Capitol with, um, you know, people storming the Capitol, five people dying, uh, 50 policemen being injured, you know, and this is happening in the U.S. And where where does this come from? Well, it was a rhetorical project uh, that led to that kind of manifestation. The other thing that I've seen happen with that, the association with that violence with the gospel makes people say, oh, yeah, I know Christians. They're the ones that stormed the Capitol shouting, make America great again and make faith great again. And they have Jesus 2020 and Trump 2020. And, you know, that equation creates uh, implausibility about the truth of the gospel. You guys talk about love and you act like that. I'm sorry. So if we keep going down the road to, you know, and that's taking that particular instance and just playing it out for the problematic nature of it, but all of our other divisions within the church and between Christians have a similar impact of pulling the plug on our claim to be loving. Mm -hmm. And this is ironically exactly what Jesus said, that all people would know that we are his disciples by the way we love. So what we're talking about here is actually successfully loving one another. So if we fail to do that, you know, it isn't too big a stretch to say that's absolutely mission critical for the advance of the gospel. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you both for, uh, just one, for just being on the podcast. And two, thank you for creating just this resource. Like, I know that it's going to be something that I continue to come back to over and over again. If people want to continue to learn from you, uh, you know, get be a part of the conference, get the book. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? You know, check check us out the Winsome Conviction, all one word dot com website. Um, and you would find, you know, our podcast runs through there, but we have a lot of other resources that pop up and we just kind of keep keep uh, relevant information up up and available there. So that'd be a great one-stop shop as a place to go. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today and just just doing the work of me of creating this resource. Thank you, Caleb. Caleb, thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. Really great to do it. Well, Hey, if you enjoyed this conversation, the best way to make sure you don't miss any of the episodes on the learner's corner podcast is by listening to this podcast or by listening, by subscribing to this podcast, some whatever podcast player you use, whether that be Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Google play, Apple podcast, whatever it is, just go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure that you go pick up their book as well. Winsome conviction. You can find the link for that in the show notes. I highly recommend it. And another way to keep learning from them as well is the online conferences that I mentioned in the intro and uh, that, that Tim had talked about in their interview as well. And again, all of those links are in the show notes for anything like that. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. If something really stood out to me or stood out to you, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is on Instagram. My handle is at Caleb J Mason would love to talk with you. Would love to hear some of the things that you're learning about. Would love to hear, you know, anything that really stood out to you from this podcast. Or if you're like, Hey, I disagree with something that, that you covered on the podcast. I would love to hear from you and, uh, and your feedback as well. So hit me up on Instagram and otherwise, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the learner's corner podcast. Thank you again to Sam and to Garrett for um, just helping make the podcast better. I'm super grateful for you guys. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.